Anti-Semitism, some would call it the original hatred, the original form of racism, hatred directed towards Jews simply for being Jews. The question is, what do we do about it? How do we push back against this very ancient hatred? It's something that people have been trying to do for decades, and it doesn't always work. Hello, my name's Brian Lilly. This is the Full Comment Podcast, and our next guest is going to discuss some of the ways that you can push back and why some of the efforts to push back against anti-Semitism are, well, just the wrong strategies, the wrong forms of, of fighting back. But before we get to Philip Slayton, I do want to remind you that you can and should hit the subscribe button on full comment. We'd love for you to subscribe and you can do that on any platform that you're listening to us on, on uh, Google podcast, on Apple, Spotify, Amazon, wherever you're listening, hit the subscribe button, leave a review and make sure that you share this with your friends. Now, what is anti-Semitism? That's probably something we should try and define at the beginning. And it's something that Philip Slayton talks about in his book, anti-Semitism and ancient hatred in the age of identity politics. Philip, thanks for the time. Glad to be here, Brian. How would you define anti-Semitism? Because that's that's something that in recent by-election here in Ontario, uh, there was a big debate about, given the uh, the comments of, of, of one particular candidate. Um, there was a debate about whether her comments actually rose to the level of anti-Semitism or not. So how do you define it? Well, Brian, it won't surprise you to hear me say that there is no easy answer to that question. There's no easy answer to what is anti-Semitism. Probably these days, the most commonly mentioned or cited definition is a definition by the International Holocaust Remembrance Association, the IHRA, that was formulated a few years ago. I personally find it highly unsatisfactory, as, as do many people, partly because it's so vague. It's one of these definitions that whatever you're looking for, you're going to find it. And partly because one thing in which it's not vague, but what one thing it's not vague about is the attitude towards Israel. Any kind of criticism of Israeli policies or the state of Israel can be under this definition construed to be anti-Semitic. But anyway, it, there's no easy answer, Brian, to what is anti-Semitism. Um, people talk about hatred of Jews, but there are many ways hatred can be expressed, and there are many different kinds of hatred. So I'm afraid I cannot give you a simple, neat. Pat, answer the question. One of the things that, that came up in the by-election I, I mentioned was this idea that Jews have a divided loyalty, that they are loyal to Israel rather than to Canada, but also that Jews control large parts of the world. In fact, there was one comment to the effect that um, Benjamin Netanyahu is controlling people around the world who are killing people in Canada. And, and you look at this and you say, first off, how do people believe such ridiculous things? But I mean, let's talk about those two angles, the the idea of divided loyalties. Um, Cap Catholics used to face that. JFK faced that when he was running for president. Well, he's not going to be loyal to America. He's going to be lo- loyal to the Vatican. That has pretty much disappeared for Catholics. It hasn't for Jews, and it it's raised when people enter public life in this country. Well, you're right, it is. I mean, I regard it as a ludicrous uh, accusation. Um, you can be a good, loyal, let's say, Canadian, and also Jewish and loyal to your religion and to your race, 
uh, and even a sympathizer with or a supporter of Israel. But that's not divided loyalties. There's lots of room for all of those sentiments in one person. So that particular claim, I think, is ludicrous. The conspiracy aspect of all this, which is, you know, Jews control the world, they control Hollywood, Hollywood, they control international banking and all of that. This is These kinds of ideas have been kicking around for quite some time. They seem to have gathered some uh, momentum recently, and I attribute that to the rise of populism, the general rise in the Western world and perhaps elsewhere of populism, because part of populism is a belief in conspiracy theory. There's always somebody else, some other person, some other group outside that is subverting your agenda, the rightful agenda. So I think the conspiracy side of it, although it's been around, as I say, for quite some time, its recent uh, acceleration, its recent momentum is part of the whole populist trend that we clearly see in politics these days. So that's the idea of divided loyalties, this idea of Jews being, as you mentioned, controlling banks, controlling Hollywood, controlling media. Um, where does that come from? Because that is that a, a 20th century edition that we're, we're still living with? Or is that something that has been uh, part of anti-Semitism from the beginning? Well, I think it's been, to some extent, Brian, part of anti-Semitism from the beginning. I mean, it has modern expressions of the kind that we just mentioned, which you, you just described. Where does it come from? Well, as I say, I think it comes from, first of all, from some deep human psychological traits. I mean, people are always looking for some other explanation of misfortunes that they think have befallen them, either individually or as a group. They're always looking for that. They're always looking for somebody who may be responsible for their misfortune. And the Jews, to some extent, historically, have presented an easy target, an easy group to pick on. Um, and then, as I say, all of this is turbocharged by populism. And also, I should add, by social media, it's now become much easier for people with silly opinions, ludicrous opinions, hateful opinions, to broadcast those opinions and even get, get some support for those opinions on social media. So social media has a lot to answer for in this particular context. I want to ask you about a, a form of anti-Semitism that uh, it's new to me, maybe not to you. We'll, and then we'll, once we establish all this, we'll get more into what you've written in your book and how people are pushing back. But I've seen lately this t new to me uh, description of, well, they're not the real Jews. They're Ashkenazi Jews. And those are the people that control the world. Is that a a, a new variation uh, on, on a tune, or is that been part of it from the beginning? No, I I, if, I actually haven't heard that view expressed in quite that way. There are, of course, two main streams of Judaism: there's the Ashkenazi Jews, who essentially trace their origin to Eastern Europe, and there are the Sephardic Jews, which have been recent times certainly trace their origins to North Africa, before that to Spain and Portugal. So those are the two main streams of Judaism. Um, both are found represented in most Jewish communities and certainly in Israel. And by the way, interestingly enough, historically, the Ashkenazis and the Sephardi Jews have not got along very well with each other. <laughs> certainly that has been true in the as, early As is often the case uh, uh, among ethnic and religious groups, there are factions within factions. Yeah, it's human nature. So the Ashkenazi Jews, those from Eastern Europe, were the earliest settlers of Palestine, what is now Israel, 
and the Sephardic Jews came from North Africa somewhat later on. And when they came to Israel from North Africa, the Ashkenazi Jews already there looked down upon them and thought they were fit only for farm laborers and domestic servants, that sort of thing. I think that's now in the past. But the idea that somehow Ashkenazi Jews are a special, powerful sect, uh, you know, and they're the people that control the world, is just ludicrous, as I say. Now, let me just add one thing. There are only about 15 million Jews in the world. So if the Jews control the world, they're doing a pretty good job against huge odds. But it has to be said that they've been Jews have been highly successful. I mean, Israel, which is predominantly, although not exclusively, a Jewish state, has been wildly successful economically, militarily, in all kinds of ways. Not socially so much, but in many ways, wildly successful. It's a very powerful Middle Eastern country with nuclear weapons and formidable army, and that's been proven time and time again. Jews in the diaspora, and that principally means the United States, Jews in the diaspora have likewise been highly successful. But it's a small group. It has been on the whole, there are exceptions, but on the whole, a highly successful group. And that may have led to some of these ideas that they run, Jews are running things. But I can, assure, I can assure you, Brian, that they are not. Having um, lived uh, adjacent to Jewish communities in Montreal and here in Toronto, um, you know, it, it's not as if every Jewish family is wealthy. There are poor Jewish families just like there are poor families from any other background. It's um, of, course, of course there are. Yeah, it's... Um, uh, but that that Ashkenazi thing, um, so I, I wasn't wrong that it appears to be new. But that's one of the things coming out on social media is that it, well, Jews aren't the problem; it's the Ashkenazi. Those are the problem. And well, I would, I would just say that the Ashkenazi are in fact Jews. So you can uh, yeah, well, yeah, yeah, no, I know that. But this is this is the new uh, form that I'm seeing on social media, uh, and sometimes being sent to me by. Uh, racist uh, readers that want me to um, uh, adopt a particular viewpoint. Well, Brian, as I'm sure you, you know, and I'm sure you would agree, the thing about social media is you can be an ignorant person and you can be a silly person and you can be a prejudiced person, but that doesn't stop you from going on social media and expressing your views. Um, that's both the horrible thing about social media and also in a way it's great glory that everybody has a platform which didn't used to be the case. Uh, but however, things like, you know, the Ashkenazi aren't really Jews and they're the ones controlling the world are just plain silly. One of the points I make in my book is that when it comes to responding to anti-Semitism, when it comes to dealing with it, you have to decide what you're going to respond to, what really matters and what really doesn't. And I would say to you that the kind of claim or accusations or conspiracy theory that you've just been describing is so manifestly silly. You know, it's like that claim was made not too long ago that the cause of wildfires in California were Jewish space lasers. Which <laughs> I hadn't heard that one. Yeah, well, that was, I think, Marjorie Taylor Greene advanced that theory. So when people say things like that, there's only one appropriate response, I think, which is just to laugh. I mean, there's no sense saying, no, that's not true. No, you're wrong. Here's an argument. It's just so ludicrous that it's best just ignored. So one of the main points, I guess, of my book on anti-Semitism that's just come out recently, I have to put a plug in for that, <laughs> is to say, look, there are some things you have to deal with, some things that are very serious, anti expressions of anti-Semitism that are really serious, 
that have to be responded to in a, in a, in a robust way. And there are others that are not. And you can't treat them all as if they're the same, which regrettably, I think, the Jewish international Jewish community tends to do that. So when, for example, a Jewish organization puts out a report that says anti-Semitism is on the rise. This year there were, I'm just pulling a number out of thin air here, this year there were 32,312 incidents of anti-Semitism. And isn't that terrible? I think it's appropriate to say, well, wait a minute, what were these incidents? How many of them were just trivial, silly, stupid, and are best ignored? And how many of them are not and should be really carefully looked at and dealt with in some effective way? So what you're arguing for and what you argue for in the book is, all right, did somebody physically attack someone? Did somebody uh, vandalize uh, a synagogue? Um, was there you know, a hateful poster uh, put up denouncing you? That, that happened recently here in Toronto, uh, uh, yeah. an ad billboard. Uh, did that happen, or was someone making a stupid comment about space lasers on Twitter? Well, I mean, what I suggest in the book is a kind of a f- four types of anti-Semitism, each of which uh, suggests a, a particular approach to deal with it. The first kind, and I think on the whole the most common kind, is what I call degradation anti-Semitism, lack of civility. Uh, this is somebody scrawling a swastika on a, on a building, which, by the way, happened on the wall of the building, the condominium that I live in not too long ago. Or somebody, you know, making a nasty observation on the street as they see an Orthodox Jew in Orthodox Jewish costume going by. This is not nice. This is not acceptable. This is uncivil. But I don't think it it heralds a new Holocaust. It needs to be treated for what it is. That's one kind of anti-Semitism. Another kind, as you just suggested, is violent anti-Semitism, when it's not just shouting dirty Jew, let's say, as somebody walks down the street, but it's punching them. That's different. That, That requires a response by the police. It requires dealing with in criminal law. It requires a robust judicial system, things like that. As much more serious. Then you move from there to what I call private institutional anti-Semitism. This would be when, let's say, universities had rules against Jews enrolling, uh, when newspapers and the editorial policy consistently took uh, um, an anti-Semitic stance, and so on. That requires a different kind of response. And then finally, you come to the what is the worst kind of anti-Semitism, hugely serious. And that's public institutional Semitism. That's when the government starts, for example, when the government starts adopting what could be reasonably regarded as anti-Semitic policies. And that requires an all-out response no matter what the cost is. But I think it's important to say, what are we dealing with? How serious is it? What is its nature? And how does a society like ours, like Canada, for example, appropriately respond? It's not always the same. The right response is not always the same response. It has to be an idea of proportionality. Would would I be right in arguing that we don't have the last kind of anti-Semitism that you described, where the government is instituting anti-Semitic policies? We may have had that in Canada in the past. In fact, we did. But, yeah, yeah. But, but I wouldn't say that we do now. I agree. I don't think we do now at all, but we have had it in the past. I mean, for most notorious, I think, example 
was during World War II, you know, the none is too many principle when it came to Jewish, desperate Jewish immigration or attempted immigration to Canada. And there was quite clearly a government policy not to allow Jews who were fleeing for their lives in many cases to enter Canada. I mean, that was official government policy. So that is the last example of this that I can think of. So we have had it in the past. I don't think we have it now. My own perception is, and I think perhaps many of my many members of the Canadian Jewish community would disagree with us, but my own perception is, on the whole, there's very little anti-Semitism in Canada, and almost all the anti-Semitism that exists is what I call degradation anti-Semitism, it's lack of civility. And by the way, I would point out that in our age of identity politics, rampant identity politics in this country and in others, there's just generally a lack of civility. It's not just directed towards Jews, it's directed towards all kinds of people. That is one of the fruits the bitter fruits of identity politics. One of many, as you say, bitter fruits of identity politics. It, it can bring out the worst in people. Uh, it, yes, it certainly can. I mean, in my view, this is maybe a bit of a segue, although not entirely really, and I deal with it in the book. In my view, identity politics, the modern form of it, the modern expression of it, is a breeding ground for prejudice and hatred. Exactly the things that originally was designed, I suppose, to combat. We see the marches, though, in the streets of Toronto and the streets of major cities across the country where, how would you describe it um, when you've got uh, marches in support of uh, Palestinians, which is completely understandable and acceptable, and uh, they have more than legitimate grievances, but often they are expressed in ways that would see well, I would argue, are anti-Semitic. Do you have to worry about people marching down Young Street uh, with banners and, and chants of from the river to the sea, uh, essentially calling for the destruction of Israel? Do, do you have to be worried about that in Canada, or is that one that you would say, you know what, just ignore it? Well, first of all, uh, the Palestinians, like any other group, have the absolute right in this country to demonstrate and to march, provided they do it in a non-violent way. And I would entirely support that. That's the first one. Secondly, as you suggest, in my view at least, the Palestinians have legitimate grievances, they have legitimate complaints, which they should feel free to express, and they should express. Thirdly, just parenthetically, the chant uh, from the river to the sea, which means, I guess, it would be interpreted as a one-state solution to the Middle East problem, whereby both Israel and what is now Palestine and the Palestinian territories form one country, that is a, a viable political proposal, which many Jews support, interestingly enough. So it's complicated. Now, the, the difficulty is that things have become so embittered, partly because of policies of the Israeli government recently, I'm thinking primarily of settlements on the West Bank, they've become so embittered that now the discourse is not, is not peaceful often, it's not, there's no discussion, uh, there's no conversation, there is just the hurling of slogans. There have been attempts to do this in the past, the Oslo Accords and so on over a long period of time. They failed, well, I think it's fair to say. So now there's no legitimate way of political differences, which are major differences and, and com compelling differences. There's no real way for them to be expressed and addressed. So then the discourse tends to collapse into the hurling of insults on both sides. 
when you speak to someone like Erwin Kotler, though, um, you know, Erwin's argued that pushing back against things like this is important because if you don't, it leads to more. It leads to um, taking the next step. Is he wrong? Well, uh, I mean, Erwin Cutler is a very distinguished person. He used to be a colleague of mine at McGill Law. In fact, I've known him for a long time. And no, he's not completely wrong, but I would say two things. The first is just pushing back against everything and anything is not a good strategy. As I've said earlier in this conversation with you, you need to discriminate. You need to look at what you're dealing with and then deal with it appropriately and, and proportionally. And some things are not worth taking a whole lot of trouble over. Others are. So you have to do that. And I think in the whole the Jewish community, and perhaps even my old friend Owen Cutler, don't do that. The second thing is that you suggest is a tricky point. I mean, it's the argument that, well, it's all very well for you, Philip Slate, to say, don't get too worried about some kind of lack of civility, which may involve, you know, hurling insults at Jews. It doesn't really matter. It's all very well for you to say that, Philip, but one thing leads to another. And these kinds of things lay the groundwork for much more pernicious and dangerous kind of anti-Semitism. I mean, people say, for example, that in Nazi Germany, it began with kind of taking the the citizen, citizens, the status of citizen away from Jews by denigrating them. And that just then laid the groundwork for all the terrible things that we know subsequently occurred. And I, and I, I concede that there is, some, there is some merit, there is some seriousness to that argument. But I still think you have to look very carefully at what you're dealing with, assess its importance. Some things are important, some things are not. This is true of all uh, aspects of life and then have a proportionate response. Uh, Philip, I, I want to talk to you in a few minutes about the different major forms of anti-Semitism and you know, problems that have been experienced over the years between Jews and Christians that led to anti-Semitism, between Jews and Muslims. But you argue in the book that Zionism is actually something that's hurt um, Jews when it comes to festering anti-Semitism. I was surprised to see that, but why do you say it? Well, I think my point is slightly different from that point that you just made, Brian. I mean, I, what I don't like, what I think is unhelpful, retrograde, is a mixing up of anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism. Is the idea that if you're anti-Zionist, by which I take take which I take to mean if you're opposed to some of the more current contemporary aggressive manifestations of Zionism. If you're opposed to that, you are therefore anti-Semitic because you can certainly be opposed to, not to the state of Israel, not to its existence, the certain current policies of it which might be regarded as Zionist policies without being anti-Semitic. Maybe we should pause for a second and just let's give the definition of what you describe as Zionism versus anti-Semitism. So Zionism backing uh, uh, the the belief or support of a a Jewish homeland in Israel. Yes, I think that's a fair way to put it. That was the original Zionism leading to the creation of Israel in 1948. It was a, as a political movement, Zionism was invented by Theodore Herzl at the end of the 19th century and promoted. And the idea was a, a homeland for Jews, which was achieved. Um, 
But Zionism today tends to mean more than that, and it's cloudy. It's not precise, which, of course, is not helpful. But it tends to mean robust, uh, perhaps even expansion or protection of the Jewish homeland, but leaving undefined exactly what the Jewish homeland is for this purpose. You mentioned earlier on the chant, from the river to the sea. So some, some, some Zionists think that is the Jewish homeland. And that, of course, includes what is currently regarded as Palestinian territory, the West Bank, including East Jerusalem and Gaza. So it's all muddled up. But I think the point is that there's so much complicated politics on all sides going on that it confuses and clouds the issue of what is anti-Semitic or not. I mean, there's been marches in the street for weeks, months now, um, denouncing policies of the uh, the Netanyahu government, um, and, and that that is hardly anti-Semitic. So, I, I guess a, a better way of phrasing your argument would be that perhaps excesses of Zionism or redefining of Zionism sets back the fight against anti-Semitism. Would that be? A, a better well, one. yes, I, mean, I would say that, but of course, the trouble is that one man's excesses are another man's <laughs> appropriate ambitions. I mean, so it is, but you're quite right in what you say about within the state of Israel itself. Israel itself, the state of Israel, is a highly fractured society. It has a substantial uh, Arab minority. Within the Jewish community, there's Ashkenazi and Sephardi, we talked about that before. There are various degrees of religiosity. Uh, there's a very strong secular movement uh, in, that's been manifested in these demonstrations against Netanyahu policies we've seen recently. Although I would say one thing about that. It does show that Israel is a free democracy with freedom of speech, which is a rare thing, certainly in the Middle East, and to some extent in the world as a whole. Relations between uh Jews and other religions, and primarily we're talking about um, uh, Christians and Muslims rather mm -hmm. than Buddhism, let's say. Um, we, we don't need to go back into the ancient history of it, but there have definitely been um, what you might call institutional anti-Semitism within both faiths at various times. How would you describe them now? Um, I mean, let's start with the Christians. It, it varies well, widely. The, the Christian uh, faith is broken down into hundreds, if not thousands, of different sects. Some of them, uh, such as evangelicals in the United States, are, are very supportive of Israel. Um, uh, but that doesn't mean that there aren't uh, expressions of anti-Semitism uh, within uh, Christianity. How would you describe it? Well, without getting kind of too historical about this, the history of Christianity when it comes to the way they regard and treat Jews is not very good. And it all, many people would say it all stems from the original deicide myth, which is, you know, the Jews kills, killed Christ, which was the great fundamental sin. They didn't, by the way, but so it's, it's just historically incorrect. But no one seems to let that stand in their way. Many analysts think that the systematic, um, uh, negative view of Jews that Christians have had throughout the ages laid the groundwork or certainly didn't stop the Holocaust. Many people think, many people think, many people who look at this very carefully think the Christian religion and the Christian church or in its various manifestations is fundamentally dislikes, if indeed is opposed 
to Jews in the Jewish religion. Now, you mentioned the evangelicals. That is a difference, particularly in the United States. There's 100 million evangelical Christians in the United States, and they, for their own curious religious reasons, seem to be very strong supporters of Israel, but not necessarily of the Jews in Israel, which is a bit different. When it comes to the Muslims, this is particularly interesting. I mean, people in the modern context think that the Jews and Arabs are at each other's throats, would like to kill each other, and have always been like that. This is not true. In fact, historically, uh, the Arab, Arab countries have been quite welcoming to Jews. When the Jews were kicked out of Spain and Portugal uh, in the 15th century, they, most of them fled to various parts of the Ottoman Empire, where they were looked after. Admittedly, they had second-class status. Nonetheless, they were looked after and protected, and many of them went on to become highly prominent in business and government. So historically, Muslims and Jews have had a certain, Arabs and Jews have had a certain sympathy and mutual regard. Now, that has collapsed mostly because of the current position in Palestine. But as people say, the thing about Palestine, the thing about the Middle East, is it's not a fight based on ideology. It's not a clash of religion. It's not a clash of races. It's about land. It's about land that two people want. And, and neither, you know, they can't all have it. And it's a fight about land. It's a fight about territory. Well, it's a fight about territory that's been going on for millennia. Well, in various ways it has, but it's had a very strong, powerful, modern expression in the last, what, 100 years or so. So... The anti-Semitism that you see emanating out of um, certain clerics in, in within Islam, uh, you, do you believe that that is generated by their religious views, or are, are they coming up with religious reasons to say, uh, well, here's the problem with the Jews, but it really all goes back to the issue of land? Well, certainly in the Middle East itself, uh, in, in the Palestinian Arabs themselves, I believe that to be primarily a dispute about territory, although there has subsequently been an open kind of a religious and an ideological and indeed a racial overlay over that. But it's really about, if you're a Palestinian Arab, it's about you took our land and we want it back. That's what it's about. More broadly speaking, it's hard to say. I mean, you know, uh, Muslim religion is a huge religion with billions of adherents and within that community you get all kinds of expressions some extreme some some uh, repulsive but many not so it's hard to say but you'll always find you know i'm sure you would agree with this brian you'll always find people and groups and subgroups looking around for someone to hate and attack for their own particular reasons and sometimes it doesn't particularly matter who, who who the object of their hatred is just a thing they want to do. To wrap up, what are your suggestions for going forward? There's, you know, a, a number of groups within Canada and around the world that um, that are fighting against anti-Semitism. Let's say that you're, you're sitting down with someone like Michael Levitt, uh, or you know, the, the folks at B'nai B'rith. What would you say to them? What What would your advice be? Well, I think I would repeat to them what I've just been saying to you, which is you have to have a more discerning, a more discriminating, and more understanding view of what is anti-Semitism, and you need to pick your battles very carefully. Not everything is worth a battle. Not everything is worth a fight. 
some things don't call for much of a response at all. Others do. Concentrate your firepower on what really matters. And I would also say that it has to be seen, anti-Semitism has to be seen in a broad context. We mentioned identity politics. One has to understand that we live in an age where all kinds of identities are being formed and being refined. A group, identity groups getting smaller all the time, and all of them have, or most of them, probably all of them, have a grievance. They define themselves partly by opposition to other people. Uh, they don't want other people to criticize them or dis- even discuss them or write about them at all. So, and that's anti-Semitism is caught up in this much broader political sociological trend, and you throw into the mix populism, we talked about a little bit earlier on, the effects of social media, which turbocharges everything, and you have a very messy, kind of volatile, explosive situation. And in in that, you have to be very careful how you respond. You have to respond very carefully, and you have to respond with proportionality if you want to get anywhere at all. I think there was once... um a hope that anti-Semitism, like other forms of, of hatred, would just disappear. But I, I think that, like poverty, it's something that will always be with us, and we can we can pass resolutions in legislatures, we can sign on to declarations that we will end this. I don't think it will end. That's You're sad, right. but I don't think it will end. You? I, I entirely agree with you. Okay. Philip, thanks for the time and thanks for the book. And uh, hopefully people can uh, can pick it up, uh, I assume, everywhere good books are sold. Is, is that the same? I think that's the same, Brian, and I hope you're right. <laughs> okay, thank you very much uh, for the time. My name is, uh, is Brian Lilly. This has been an episode of Full Comment Podcast. Full Comment is a podcast uh, by the Post Media Podcast Network. This episode was produced by Andre Pru with theme music by Bryce Hall. Kevin Libin is the executive producer. You can subscribe on Full Comment or to Full Comment on uh, Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, Amazon Music. Listen through the app or your Alexa enabled devices, and you can help us by giving us a rating or review. Thanks for listening. Until next time, I'm Brian Lilly. <laughs>